Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Giant retailer Sears is bankrupt. What happens next? You could buy houses from Sears, you could buy watches, you could buy dogs, you could buy tools, you really could buy absolutely anything, but it just hasn't evolved. The power of American shale oil. This year, America is expected to produce more crude oil than Saudi Arabia or Russia. And will dropping the weight in Weight Watchers mean that it can now take on the heavyweights of the wellness industry? The scales were sort of hidden behind a, behind a curtain and it was optional to weigh yourself. They're literally hiding the scales. I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. First, Sears has declared itself bankrupt. The iconic chain of department stores was founded 126 years ago, in 1892. It used to be the largest retail company in America until it was overtaken by Walmart in the 80s. Josie Delap is our retail correspondent. Josie, what happened? Sears has been declining for a long time. This has been a very gradual, steady downturn for the chain. And it's a story that fits with the general tale of retail today, which is of big stores struggling in the age of Amazon, struggling against e-commerce more generally, and big department stores in particular that struggle to have a unique selling point. They try to do everything and people don't really want that in quite the same way. I don't understand that really. I mean, you and I are both busy people with families and jobs and I go to one store and buy absolutely everything and I don't know if you do the same. So why is that not so attractive to so many people anymore? Well, a lot of them are attracted to that, but they want to do it on Amazon. But the problem for a shop like Sears is that there are retailers that are offering the similar products at cheaper prices. And there are ones that are more specialist and so can offer a broader range of particular products, which gives you a bit more choice. And you would be surprised at how many people still like shopping. I'd be very, very surprised and you can't stand it myself. This presumably could have been predicted and was predicted. It's been predicted for a long time. I mean, people have been wondering just how long Sears was going to cling on. It's been shutting stores for a long time. It's it's gone down from having thousands across America to having, I think, about 900 now. And, and it's still continuing to close them. So, yes, this is not a surprise. But this isn't that they're just shuttering all the stores straight away. This is this Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Right. So this is the opportunity for them to not go instantly bankrupt, but to try and restructure, reorganise, see if they can keep things going. But I think that the chances aren't looking good, that, that this will end up with Sears closing. And no chance of a takeover by somebody else of at least some of the stores then? I think that's possible, but it, Sears merged with Kmart, which is another big retailer, some time ago. And that was a case of sort of two quite weak retailers coming together. And the stores that are left are often in malls, which aren't necessarily doing very well. And so they're not necessarily space that other big shops want to take over, perhaps restaurants or or other businesses. But I don't think it's an obvious choice for another retailer to take over. 
It's the end of an era, really, isn't it? Absolutely. It really is. It's such a feature of American life. It even featured in a Billy Joel song, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. was in many ways the original Amazon. It started when it became a big retailer as a catalogue company. So people who were living in parts of America that really didn't have access to the kinds of shops that you might in New York or Chicago could buy stuff from these tomes of catalogues, which were so big that actually people often ended up using them as toilet paper. But they could buy anything. You could buy houses from Sears. You could buy watches. You could buy dogs. You could buy tools. You really could buy absolutely anything. So in that sense, it was a precursor to Amazon. But it just hasn't evolved in the way that retailers really need to now. Its stores are not pleasant places to go and shop. and, And it just doesn't have the online presence that you need to compete today. Thanks, Josie. Thanks. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us on radio at economist.com. Next, American shale oil. It was promised as the panacea to supply problems and fluctuating prices and volatility in the Middle East. There are headlines like Don't Mess With Texas at the Global Oil Superpower. HSBC claimed that if it were a country, Texas would be the world's number three oil producer behind only Russia and Saudi Arabia. Charlotte Howard, our New York bureau chief and energy and commodities editor, has been to the oil fields in West Texas to find how the shale oil industry is growing up. Charlotte, give me some sort of sense of the scale here. This year, America is expected to produce more crude oil than Saudi Arabia or Russia. And next year, the International Energy Agency thinks that the shale boom in total will comprise the biggest surge in a country's oil production since the agency started keeping track. So bigger even than the discovery of Saudi Arabia's oil fields in the 1960s. And so it's really been a historic boom of the shale industry over the past decade. And presumably that's played through in not only supplies, but in prices. Absolutely. So when the shale industry took off, you saw companies furiously spending and drilling uh, hundreds upon hundreds of wells. And the output, both of natural gas and of crude oil, rose quite quickly. In 2014, OPEC declined to cut their own production, wagering that they would put some of the less profitable, more flagrant spenders in America out of business. And indeed, there was a big plate of bankruptcies that happened after the oil price sank. But since then, you've seen the companies that have survived start to change how they do business. Are there capacity constraints in bits of this business then since it's grown so fast? Yes. So in the past year, you've seen West Texas in particular producing far more oil than they have the capacity to get rid of. So there are big backlogs in pipeline capacity. There are going to be new pipelines built that should open towards the end of next year. But there are other constraints that will linger. So the unemployment rate in Midland, which is the heart of this oil boom in West Texas, is just about 2%. There's incredible competition for all kinds of workers, from truck drivers to people working on these rigs and in the offices themselves, geologists and so forth. So that will be a long-term issue. And then water is a big issue for fracking. They use about twice as much water as they did even just two years ago in an effort to get more oil out of the wells. And so that means that people are fighting both over access to water to pump into the wells, and then also you have to deal with the wastewater after. It can be quite expensive to remove it. You can't re-inject all of it back into the earth. So that creates another headache for shell companies. 
And how does this trickle out or, uh, should we say, leak out into the rest of the economy? I mean, does this mean that America doesn't need to import stuff? It's exporting more? You know, what would you think are the biggest impacts of this shale boom on the rest of the U.S. economy? It used to be that America, of course, didn't export crude oil. That ban was lifted a few years ago. But America still does import more than it exports. And there's lots of talk from the president about energy dominance and America as a new energy superpower. And indeed, it has changed the way that America interacts in the global oil markets. But it's still hugely dependent on imports from other countries. Oil is a global commodity and the U.S. is a long way from energy independence nor is that necessarily a goal that many people think America should pursue. This stuff is going to run out at some point, isn't it? Have we any idea when that would be? The recent gains in productivity, um, it's unlikely that they will be able to continue growing production at the recent pace. It's just been so dramatic in recent years. But there is going to be a shale industry for a long time. It just will look quite different from the shale industry as we've seen it to this point. So The pressures that are on shell companies now around infrastructure, investors increasingly want these smaller shell companies to not just grow and spend and drill more and more wells, but they also want them to make money. What a novel thought, right? And so the investors are pressuring companies to return more capital to shareholders. That may mean that companies slow growth and the most vulnerable shell companies probably I would bet would be bought up by these bigger operators that have the money to invest in infrastructure that are very, very good at logistics. It's gone from that that point in an industry where you're madly growing and searching for new wells to a, a much more mature one that's about logistics and supply chain. So you'll see the shape of the industry change. I have two environment-related questions for this. One is like a local one. I mean, fracking is pretty dirty for the people in the area, I understand. And then the global one, really, last week we saw quite a sobering report out from the IPCC on what needed to happen if the world is to avoid catastrophic climate change. Are we doing enough on both of these fronts in the fracking industry? It's a complicated question, of course, and there are short-term issues and long-term ones. In the short term, on the local level, water, it's quite tricky to deal with this water because if you inject too much of it into the rock formations from which you've extracted the oil, you're more likely to have earthquakes. And indeed, we've seen that in the Permian Basin that spans West Texas and southeastern New Mexico, where the number of, of earthquakes are not large earthquakes, but they are earthquakes, have increased almost by double since the start of the year over the same period last year. On the macro level, There is the reality that oil companies always point out that there is growing demand for oil. And in the near term, there's the issue that there may not be enough supply because big oil companies with their eye on the long term have been reluctant to invest in big projects offshore, for instance. So the amount of capital investment in upstream projects and new big oil projects is about half what it was in 2014. And there's volatility in Venezuela and Libya and so forth. Of course, the Iran sanctions will take effect shortly. And so there's real concern that there won't be sufficient supply in the next three to five years. You have the Dallas Fed warning of the possibility of price spikes. So that's really a near-term issue. In the long term, there's this question that everyone continues to grapple with within the oil industry of how to plan for a point where demand for oil might begin to subside. And you see companies taking vastly different responses to that question. So it's very much a a work in progress. Charlotte, thanks. Thank you. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Finally, Weight Watchers is shedding a bit of weight itself. It's had a rebrand and from now on will be known simply as WW. 
Sasha Nauser is our public policy editor. Sasha, what's that about? Weight Watchers have been the granny of weight loss brands and were able to rely on a, on a very sound formula for, for over 50 years, which was people would gather in meetings, they'd be weighed, points would be calculated, and, and it was relatively successful at helping people lose weight. However, there's two big trends that they kind of missed out on for quite a while, which is the move to digitalization. And secondly, the move away over the last five or ten years from diet and weight loss. Now it's all about wellness and health and being strong and clean. And so the rebrand, partly just by removing the word weight from their name and becoming WW, rather elusive what WW actually stands for, but the, the subtitle sort of wellness that works. And with that, they're trying to catch up to these trends and to appeal to a broader audience of people who don't simply want to lose weight, but who more broadly want to be healthy. And do you think that can work in a world where we all have things like apps and, you know, we use these wearables and so on? Well, yeah, no, exactly. So digitalization um, and particularly indeed free apps and, and fitness trackers that will do a lot of the work for you help explain why the company really suffered in 2014-15. Some described it as a, as a near-death experience because for a long time they were in denial about those that kind of competition. I think where Mindy Grossman, the, the new CEO, is, is trying to take the company, partly by investing heavily in technology, in its own app, in working together with all the major fitness trackers, she's trying to indeed place the company so that it can work in harmony with that. And have they got any big names on board or anything like that? Well, the biggest name by far is Oprah Winfrey. And if you're looking at how the company is sort of come back from its near-death experience in 1415. Oprah is is huge in explaining that. I mean, the, the, the Winfrey effect, so to speak, of, of her tweeting that she, she'd lost a lot of weight off the programme while still eating bread, I think it caused stocks to skyrocket within a day. She's probably the biggest name attached to the brand. But recently, they've also got quite a few men on board. DJ Khaled, a hip-hop artist, is one of the more recent additions in an attempt to get younger people, but particularly also men on board. I mean, one of the big things they're trying to get out there is the word that this is not just for middle-aged women. So if you're a member of WW, will you still go to weekly weigh-ins and, or will you see a big change? Two things are changing for people who attend these meetings, and it's happening gradually, right? Because there's 30,000 of these meetings every week around the world, and some studios will be much faster than others in, in, in catching up with the new programme. But the big things that are changing are, one, that the scales are less central to these meetings. So before, you know, the, that would be the, the starting point. How much does everybody weigh? Let's all clap and calculate our points. Now the scales are much more discreet, hidden behind a curtain. And if you want to weigh yourself, you can. It's optional. But secondly, most membership growth is now in digital-only members who don't go to physical meetings, who just track themselves discreetly. And again, therefore, whilst weight will always be a central part of measuring wellness, which is quite an elusive term, it's clearly emphasising that a lot less. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks, Ellen. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.